Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. Hello and welcome. My name is Matthew Gibson and this week on the Educated Hunter we are speaking to Ed Banner. We work with Ed um, back in New Zealand as part of our Ultimate OE training. He is a certified Canadian Red Cross and Canadian firearms instructor so he looks after that side of the certification when we do our training specifically for our Canadian hunting boys and first aid for our Canadian equine or guest ranching crew. Um, so we've we've had a business relationship with Ed for a couple of years. Uh, he is a, a born Kiwi although he has British lineage. Um, he has a Kiwi passport and he lives in Canada, so I was over on Vancouver Island, so I managed to drop in and have a conversation with Ed. Now, Ed is not perhaps as hunting-focused as some of our guests on the show have been in previous times. He does hunt, and he obviously has a lot to do with with firearms and, and the outdoors, uh, but a lot of the conversation we have revolves around some of Ed's experience in the military, um, working as a private contractor working with police and military and other government agencies in Africa and all around the world. It was a really interesting conversation, actually, and some of the stuff that he was speaking about does tie pretty strongly back to New Zealand. We had a pretty extensive chat. It's one of the longer podcasts we've put out. Um, We'd be interested to hear any feedback from you guys, whether you you would prefer a, a shorter, more succinct podcast around that hour mark or this one I think by the time we have intro and outro tacked on the end of it will be nearing two hours so would really um, appreciate any feedback that you guys have about length and what you prefer but other than that I won't speak any longer than I have to because I'll just make it longer so without further ado here is Ed Banner. All good all right well thanks for agreeing to meet me out here today we're in where are we Souk? Vancouver Souk, yeah. Southern Vancouver Island. Describe soup to me. <laughs> I've got to be careful what I say here. Um, it's a small blue-collar town that's getting busier and busier. It's There are some elements of it that's like a bedroom community for people who work in Victoria. Right. Um, but there's still, you know, an, a core community here. It started off as sort of a small blue-collar logging town, mostly with a bit of fishing. And um, it's growing. I think we've been here now... Th- nearly three years and it's grown from like 13,000 to 15 or even to 16 now it's uh it's on its way up by a few thousand people a year it's getting bigger and bigger right because we're right on the coast here you can almost you look at your window you can almost visualize the where is the beach that way yeah it is yeah Yeah. and it's it's only probably 500 yards from here if you go in the right direction through the bush right and the coast here is famous for halibut and various types of salmon. Uh, they get halibut here? Yeah, they do. It's in fact, I think, I was going to say it's halibut season coming up, but it isn't. It's one of the salmons I think is coming up. Halibut season I think is at the end of summer. Don't quote me on that. I might make an idiot out of myself. So the, halibut's huge. It's either halibut or salmon. They'll do one or the other depending on the time of year and the season. Right, and the halibut are the big kick-ass flounders, aren't they? 
Yes, as far as I know, I've never caught one here, but yeah, that's what I know. They have massive derbies here and uh, competitions. People come from all over really? to fish here. It's one of I, the most popular spots. I always thought that to get halibut, you had to go north. You had to go to the north end of the island or up to the Queen Charlotte, Haidegui, up yeah. in that way to get halibut, or off the west coast. Yeah, no, there's tons of them here. Okay. Tons, yeah. And literally right off the coast of Souk. Like, you'll see the boats, when they have, like, a derby here, and there are, like, a million boats out on the water, um, you'll see them only a couple of hundred yards offshore. Huh. They're just sitting out there at anchor and just hauling up huge fish. I'm going to have to do some research on that because I've got a mate with a boat here, and I'm peer pressure into taking me out to catch halibut because it's one yeah, of the things sure. I want to tick off before I leave Canada. I've ticked off a few of the salmon, but, I mean, you know, unless we're talking about a 50-pound spring salmon, that's probably my last yeah and that's not an easy thing to do so i've caught all the other bottom fish but i've never managed to catch a big halibut and it's you know when i say big they get a couple hundred kilo don't they i think so yeah um i've never had the opportunity to to go i know a couple of guides here so i might go out with them um because it's all about knowing the spot the time of year the time of the tide the currents everything is quite critical to get that good fish i think you can go out there pretty much anywhere at any time and get fish it's just if you want that good one yeah because they're they're similar they're a deep water fish traditionally and that from what i can tell and the guys that i've spoken to who fish them a lot that seems to be very similar to catching say groper in new zealand right like it's deep water you're fishing on pinnacles so you're really at the mercy of the current and the tide and and getting your timing right and sort of you get a couple of shots at the right tide and then it sort of turns to custard but they're quite predatory like they'll apparently they if you've got a pinnacle they'll cruise along the just below the edge and then they'll shoot up on top to hammer something so they're quite a aggressive fish if you can get your bait or i've seen guys use a big kick-ass soft plastics for them as well but if you can get your bait down there, then they are quite aggressive feeders. Hmm. So yeah, that'd be really cool. I have to do that. Well, it's famous for it here, yeah. and at the right when the right time of year rolls around, um, and I can't remember off the top of my head when it is because I've never been, but it, the place just fills up with fishermen. No kidding. They have huge competitions. Oh, yeah. well, you learn something every day. If I learn nothing else on this podcast, Ed, that's a there you go. That's a good start. Because <laughs> we were out on the um, coast this weekend, so my little brother. And his partner have turned up from New Zealand via Japan and Europe. They sort of uh, reared a bunch of calves last year and <clears throat> earned a bunch of money. So now they're spending the second half of the year traveling, essentially. So they've turned up here and bought a old van and converted it into a camper nice. van. And their intention sort of to do a big loop down through the States and back up through Canada. But... They were out on the island with us, and they're still on the island actually doing a test run in the camper van to make sure it's not going to blow up while they're still (laughs) sort of relatively close to where we are in Vancouver. So we went out to Tofino, and I was having this conversation with uh, my partner yesterday. It was the first time in a while that I've felt um, significantly homesick just because that coast – it's probably yeah. a combination of, you know, being around my little brother who I haven't seen in a while, you know, reminds you of home. And then yeah. actually Anna's cousin and his partner were there as well. So they're both fresh off the boat from New Zealand. So there was, you know, six Kiwis who are essentially family hanging out. And on that coast, it sort of reminded me of a cross between – it's very similar to the Catlins in a lot of ways. It is. I agree. Yeah. It's funny you mention that. I find that um, I spent a bit of time in Ontario and in Alberta. 
and in, May, in the uh, interior of BC in the Kootenays. And if everywhere I've been, and that's not really sampling all of Canada, but it's sampling a reasonable spectrum of what Canada has to offer topographically and weather-wise, Vancouver Island is the closest to home yeah. I've found. And that part of, Can- of uh, Vancouver Island specifically, that um, they call it the Pacific Rim National Park, yep. that is the most specific, um, like New Zealand. So longitude, latitude, longitude. Latitude. What, which, what are you? We're 46 or 47 here, uh, which is the same good as question. Um, Invercargill. Yeah, something like that. Um, I think is it, in fact, I think it must be 47. Yeah. Because um, I think it's closer to 48. I should probably know that. I always, I always think about the vodka. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 46 yeah. below. Yeah. So it, it must yeah. be 46 or 47, which is about, New Zealand speaking, the equivalent of Invercargill right. on the other side of the world, right. which would probably explain why it looks yeah. like the Catlins. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think there's a lot here um, culturally that's similar to uh, the the First Nations in this part of Canada. Um, like if you ever see – did you go to any of those art galleries in Tofino when you were there? Yeah, like we if did. You, if you go into like those native um, art galleries, a lot of it you look at it and you think, you know, shit, that could be Māori. You know, yeah. it's very similar that like – and I know they're sort of diagonally opposite across the Pacific, right? I mean, New Zealand's technically only over there. Yeah. You know, it's like, and you think you've got Hawaii in the middle, then you've got, you know, the other Pacific islands, then New Zealand. It's funny how the um, a lot of the art that's created and the, the culture of the indigenous people has a lot in common. Yeah. And it's very strange. It's very know? strange. And I wonder if but, that's actually, a, I mean, I'm no historian for sure, but a lot of it may relate to just the general ethos of the way that they traditionally lived, you know, on the coast, hunter-and-gatherer type yeah. mentality. Yeah, and I, sure. I guess that probably would result in some mirroring, um, well, some similarities in terms of the art and their culture that's produced through that way of life yeah. rather than direct contact. But you know, I, I might be wrong. Somebody out there saying might be saying to themselves, oh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. You're, you're totally wrong. But anyway, yeah, cool. Um, so we're in Souk. It's a long way to talk about it. We're just um, south of Victoria, which is um, on Vancouver Island, which is the it's a relatively big island. What is it, six, 700K tip to tip? Yeah, something like that. If you, if you wanted to drive from here right up to the top to Port Hardy, it would take you about uh, eight hours, something yeah, like so that. Yeah, so it's a pretty, pretty big punch. Yeah. It's sort of the equivalent of driving the – the length of the North Island. The, um, it's probably pretty close, yeah. The roads are a little straighter here, so you cover the ground yeah. a little bit quicker. But It's skinny, though. It's long and skinny. It lo- long and skinny, but it's, you know, most people are surprised by just how big um, Vancouver Island is when they get here. Yeah. So we're just sure. south of Victoria. I'm over here, and my partner's doing some work um, in Victoria, so I'm just sort of riding her coattails, staying in the hotel. So a good opportunity to catch up with Ed. Um as I said in the intro, we have um, met professionally, so we've done quite a bit of stuff. Now, a couple of years you've been involved mm, with us now, yeah. haven't you? Yeah, um, that's right. Which has been really cool, but thought this would be a good opportunity. And I f- am finding more and more that these podcasts and these conversations are opportunities to really get down to the nuts and bolts and get to know someone a little bit better. And, you know, as much time we've spent together in a training setting, you never really sit down and have conversations about 
meaningful yeah, stuff. Yeah. Really, do you? And it's, a, yeah, it's, it's almost becoming a lost art in a lot of ways, which yeah. might explain why podcasts are becoming more and more popular because you can um, actually, while you're doing something, listen to some meaningful conversation. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Um, it sounds like a simple question, but the answer is a bit complicated, a little bit all over the place. Um, I suspect that it would be. <laughs> yeah. Well, my accent, and I say this to people when I'm teaching, particularly in North America, because my accent's very hard for them to pin down. Depending on the group I'm teaching, they'll either say I sound um, Australian, South African, or British. They almost never say Kiwi, and that's because I don't think many people know what the Kiwi accent sounds like, and mine is not a good example of that anyway. But my accent is a medley of um, all of those places, actually, South Africa, the UK, New Zealand, probably a little bit of Aussie in there, and a little bit of Canadian. I don't know if you've noticed, but I, when I talk to friends and family back in New Zealand, they say I sound more Canadian when I'm on the phone. It's funny how I'm digressing slightly from your question, but there is a point to this. Like I know some friends of mine will live in another country with a very different accent for years, and their accent won't change. Mm-hmm. They sound like where they are from forever, whereas for me it changes all the time. It's not deliberate. It's weird. Like I can hear now my accent's probably a little bit more Kiwi than it normally is because I'm talking to you. Yeah. And when I'm talking to my wife, who's Canadian, I sound a little, I, it, the words I use and the way I roll my R's and stuff is a bit more Canadian. It's weird. I don't do it yeah. on purpose. It just happens. All right. But, so um, yeah, where so, did you grow up? Well, start from New, the start. New Zealand is home. Um, the South Island specifically, I haven't spent a ton of time on the North Island. Um, New Zealand is like where I spent my formative years and it's uh it's home, and that's where my accent is mostly based, I suppose. But um, I spent a lot of time in the UK. Um, my parents are POMs, actually, um, so I, and I spent a lot of time there working. Um, I still have a lot of British family, although I don't go there very often. It's not, it's not somewhere that I, I tend to visit too much. Um, I spent uh, about three years, give or take, in South Africa um, as well when I got a little bit older, and I've been in Canada now on and off for five and a half it's going on six years right which is why my accent's a bit of a meddling and just one other thing we were talking about accents apparently if i'm on my best behavior and i'm trying to talk to like someone's grandma or someone really important i sound completely british if i'm really angry and frustrated i sound completely south african and if i'm totally relaxed (laughs) that's when the kiwi comes out so it's interesting it depends on my state of mind you know so i've been told that it can change a little bit started in new zealand yeah. When you spent a lot of time back in England. Why were you into England? Why were you going back to England? My, my folks, being Poms, um, had me back there. Um, I So it was like I summer was, holidays or was it? No, it was uh, – my dad was an engineer um, and he used to travel around doing stuff with nuclear power plants, strangely enough, and he did a lot of work with nuclear power plants um, over there. And I remember spending a lot of time there. I did some schooling over there. Not a shitload and of I, work for nuclear power plant technician engineers in New Zealand. No, indeed not. Well, I think <laughs> technically, I, I say he's a nuclear engineer. I think you would probably, if you asked him, he'd say he was an electrical engineer because right. he focused in any kind of electrical generation, okay. um, power generation. It just, for some reason, it, it turned out to be um, based on uh, nuclear stuff. He's kind of like the the Homer Simpson of the family, I suppose. But I um, I didn't uh, – I wasn't really a school person. I didn't uh, I didn't really do much with uh, with school. When I got out of school, I, I was trying to think whether I should go to college to do something vocational. I knew I wasn't going to go to university. I didn't have that kind of an academic bent in me. Um, I ended up joining the military 
for quite honestly lack of a better idea. I had a plan. My plan was at the time when I lived in the UK and I was 15. So this would have been in the early-ish, mid to early to mid-90s. Um, I can't remember what it was that came out, but there was something, it, it was either a, a show or a movie that came out that um, was all about the Harrier jump jets. You remember those plane, those fighter jets that would take off vertically? Yeah. They were kind of a big deal throughout the 80s and the 90s. They're a bit dated now, but I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to fly a Harrier jump jet because it would have just been super cool. And Top Gun hadn't long came out, and I thought, you know, it would be so cool to be like a a Tom Cruise-type character flying around and getting with all the chicks and, you know, and flying the fast jets and having all the good times. And I remember um, going to one of my um, career counsellors or whatever they call them, like a a career person at school, and said, this is what I want to do. And it wasn't actually the Air Force. They're in. They're part of the Navy. These Harrier jump jets because they used to take off and land from the aircraft carriers. I didn't know that at the time. And he, this career guy, set up a meeting with. Um, I remember his name to this day as well. Wing Commander Canning was his name, and this is like a million years ago. It's funny how you remember these things. Um, and uh, we had an interview, and and it went fine until it got to the point where he reviewed my grades and my academic performance, and he's like, "Yeah, there's no way you're going to be flying a jet." And it wasn't because I was, you know. I wasn't intelligent. It's because I just hated school. It just bored the ass off me. I was not interested in academia at all. And I just never focused on my grades because I didn't care. I just really, it was not something that was important to me. And he said that um, there's no way, you know, unless I could go back in time and like really graft for a couple of years, there's no way that I'd be able to, to fly. He said, if I did like remedial academic stuff, I might be able to get into it. But it seemed like way too much academic work for me to to go down that road. So I didn't. And, you know, I'd sort of set my sights on going into that kind of industry and that kind of uh, environment. And it just turned out that uh, I ended up becoming a soldier, for better or worse. But, um, yeah, and that was that. So I spent a bit of time working with the British military. And then when I moved to South Africa, which was in 2002, something like that, um, I actually moved there. Um, it was originally stuff to do with the military. The, uh, a lot of NATO forces and UN forces will do training for other militaries or other law enforcement or peacekeeping um, units around the world, particularly if they have poor standards or poor, um, like if, if they're not used to to the conflict they're dealing with, they'll draw on other NATO forces to come and instruct and teach and so on. And I was there, it was actually in Yemen, I was doing a contract there, a military contract teaching in Yemen with a whole bunch of other people. And uh, there were some private guys there as well. And they said, if you like get out of the military and you go private, you can do the same stuff you're doing now, but you'll get paid 10 times as much and you'll be, um, you'll have so much more freedom and it's so much more fun and, and all the rest of it. So that's what we did. And the reason we went to South Africa is I'd been there before on holiday with a, an old girlfriend at the time and I liked it. And one of the guys that we um, we would we used to teach together um, uh, through these NATO contracts and what have you, he had contacts in Johannesburg, and he said he's sure that he'd be able to find a, some sort of contract work doing teaching for security services or South African police or South African Defence Force. So that's why we ended up in South Africa hmm. specifically. Although I was based in South Africa, we did a lot of work in travelling throughout other parts of Africa, mainly in Central Africa, not so much in the north. Mainly okay. in sort of central and southern. Like are you talking so, central, is in central South Africa or like no, say, yeah, so central Africa is in the continent. So right. the DRC, um, CAR, little bit in Uganda, little bit in New Guinea. So we went into 
I've been to almost, at some stage, I've probably been to every country on the continent. There might be a couple tucked away here and there that I, I haven't been to, but most of the work we did was like pretty much dead center. If you were to, to draw a picture of the continent of Africa and you were to pick the very middle, which is where that dark jungly hole is, which is mostly yeah. the DRC and Congo and places like that, most of the stuff we would do operationally was there. So I'm sort of moving away from the training aspect and going to the operational stuff, but I spent a lot of time in that area, even though okay. I wasn't teaching. Let's talk about so, that because the DRC, Congo, CAR, and when were you doing this in the 90s? No, this would have been early in the 2000s. early 2000s, yeah. Still wasn't a very friendly place in the early 2000s. No, it was not a friendly place at all. Um, Still not. It's funny because, yeah, you know, they they call Africa the dark continent, right? And a lot of people think that that's because of the brutality and the savage nature of it, of which there is plenty. But I I think of it like Africa might be the dark continent, but the main reason is no one ever hears about it. You don't hear about anything that really goes on there, for better or worse. Um, It has to be something huge, something significant, like a massive genocide or or something that will directly affect us living in the West, whether it's something to do with resources or, or something like that. But generally speaking, um, bad stuff happens all over the continent of Africa all the time, and you never hear about it, like ever. It's one of those, it's really, it's the it's a, the dark continent in that it's sort of in the shadows as far as we're yeah, concerned. Like offline. You hear, yeah, you hear about the Middle East all the time because we have interests there with military and with... Um, uh, for religious reasons as well, for resource reasons with oil. You hear about the the stands on a regular basis. You hear about Eastern Europe and Russia to a degree. You hear about Asia, um, you know, because China's a superpower and, of course, North Korea and all that sort of stuff. But uh, you really hear about, um, like in New Zealand and the UK and places, you really hear about South America. But you hear about South America here in Canada because it's it's sort of considered part of the Americas. But everywhere, whether you're in the UK, um, New Zealand, Australia, the US, Canada, everywhere seems to forget about Africa often. And if they talk about Africa, it's either the the Islamic troubles in the north, just because Islamic troubles in general are what dominate the news. I'm not opining on that specifically. I'm just saying that you hear about that or you hear about South Africa because it's probably the most westernized nation. But the vast majority of Africa as a continent, particularly everything in the middle, you just don't hear about. You might hear that someone's been on a safari once to, you know, yeah, but that's kind that's, of it. it's a It's a really interesting thing, and I, I, I enjoy having this conversation with people because I was lucky enough to go to a few of those places. And because we were hunting, you, you're away from the, the bubble that is safari tourist yeah. photographic stuff like you don't go to the Congo to take photos no. you just don't go there you'd have to be you know <laughs> crazy to do that because you can yeah, take yeah. great photos you know in the Ngorogoro crater or right. in Kruger National Park you don't need to put yourself in that exactly. position to exactly. get a photo but if you want to hunt certain things yeah. then you have to go to certain places where those things are and you've spent time there haven't you hunting and I have yeah yeah so when I was Filming for Shockey and 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 all others, um, I you know I went to the Congo, I went to you know Uganda, so a lot of the places you've, you're talking about, mm. CAR, Cameroon, a couple of times, nice. so that West Africa, and then a lot of the coastal, so Ghana, you know places like that that are off the traditional tourist map. Yeah, and when you get there, you know I remember the first time I went 
to Canada, I got a, a nice, easy, and so I landed in South Africa. We went to the Eastern Cape. We stayed in a beautiful lodge. We went out and we we hunted um, a range of planes game, um, and then it sort of ramped up a little bit. My first one of my first filming um, hunts was actually darting a black rhino. So in those days, they in South Africa, in South or, Africa, yeah. yeah. So in those days, they. Um, so with that, the farmers in South Africa basically bought the black rhino and the white rhino back from the brink of extinction um, because the South African and Namibian government made it legal to essentially own rhinos and other game animals as stock and they could trade them and breed them. So that brought the population back right. up. So yeah. where we were, it was a, a hunting slash photographic safari company and every year they would dart these black rhinos and they would put microchips in their horns. They'd take their bloods, you know, medicate oh. them if they needed, all that kind of stuff. So they said, okay, cool. rather than shooting them dead, we will charge, I think it was $30,000. It was called a green hunt. Yeah. You sneak up to a black rhino with a bow and arrow. You shoot them with a bow nice. and arrow, and there was a, a dart on the end of the arrow with a like a little twenty two charge in it that pushed the drug right. in. Um, and then he would, you know, run off, hopefully, and, and then – you know, get the wobbles and go down. Yeah. And then we'd, you know, get all the photos, do all that, then uh, do all their vet stuff. So we had a vet there. We had a helicopter there in case it went sideways. We had all the backup, did all that. They did all the drugs. They drilled the horns, did all that kind of stuff. Then to wake them up and slap them on the ass and while they go. So yeah. it was a way to sort of tick that box of hunting. That's pretty a, cool. Air quotes, hunting a black rhino. But at the same time, you know, they're yeah, a critically yeah. endangered species. There's only a certain. Um, awesome. You know, only a couple of scenarios that I can think of that warrant actually shooting one. Yeah. So if you've got a mature male, for example, that might be killing other black rhinos right. or yeah. that they're going to have to shoot anyway, then it makes sense to bring a hunter in and get the money to, to shoot that animal so it's not dying for nothing. Mm. Um, but that was before there was a, there's been a massive rise of poaching since then. So that green hunting thing's gone by the wayside. But anyway, back to my trajectory was sort of South Africa, that rhino hunt, yeah, where I had to sign my life away. It basically said, "This black rhino is worth two hundred fifty thousand dollars. We won't shoot it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Just so you know, you're not worth as much as he is. <laughs> yeah, you know that yeah. was literally the bit of paper that we signed, and you know it's, it was it was a cool story actually. But we shot it, and it we snuck up on this thing, and they don't have the best eyesight, but black rhinos are kind of like you know the evil younger cousin of the white rhino. They just right. Grumpy. By nature, grumpy and cantankerous. Yeah. So we darted this thing, and for whatever reason, the dart didn't go off. Uh, so basically stuck this thing in the ass with a long needle, which inherently pissed it off. And you'd be close, too, if you're using a bow. Yeah, we were within 25 yards. Yeah, that's... Uh, yeah. So and we're, and you've got Jim in front of us, who was using a bow and arrow. I was directly behind him. And then in front of Jim, sorry, was the guide, right? right. So there's three of us in a row. So kind of a big clump of people, you know, not that inconspicuous. And it was kind of low brush and shrubs, spiky shrubs. So we snuck up onto this thing and he was quite happy just sitting there munching away. And we shoot him in the ass with this arrow. And he's been darted before, so he knows the deal. So the yeah. first thing he does is swing around to deal to whatever, just bit him in the ass. So he swings around and you can you can see him. And pigs do it sometimes at low light. They'll know something's there and they'll be looking back and forward like – he was looking at us, and then he was looking at a bush. Yeah. And he was looking at us, 
and looking at a bush, trying, trying to, to decide which one he's going to deal to. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully for us, he decided to deal to the bush. So he charged the bush, which was like literally five yards to our right, tore it out of the ground, stomped the shit out of it, and then yeah. took off running. <laughs> so we were like, okay, that was not great. And at that point, the vets were like, well, it didn't go off, obviously. We don't know how much he did or didn't get. So, you know, we'll try it again, but we're going to use this dosage. And right. so the next time we snuck him on him, he was already pissed. Like he was not a happy camper yeah. and he was looking to deal to anything and everything. So my introduction into filming was a little bit high octane and it all ended well, but um, <laughs> it's a little right. bit scary. But that back to Africa, you know, I, I landed on the Eastern Cape, you know, went and did that South African thing, went over to Limpopo, yeah, you know, and we had um, Jim's daughter Eva with us and his wife Louise. So we were staying in really nice places. And I was like, oh, this Africa's pretty yeah. much what I expected it to be. And then they left and we flew to, well, we went straight into Mozambique, I think. Right. Which was. Not the same. And then from Mozambique, we went to Uganda. And, you know, that was, you know, we were way out on the Sissy Islands. Mm. People's perspective of Africa and how it is, like it literally comes from, you know, your neighbours that went on safari in right. Kruger. And here's some nice photos of a lion sitting down and a leopard in a tree mm. and a elephant's outside yeah. our chalet. Or from, from movies, right? Yeah. People see the Lion King and they just think about those, you know, those big animals on the, the savannah and, you know. Yeah. The circle of life has done yeah. wonders for the, the understanding. <laughs> of, and it's personification of animals too. Like we watch, right. we grow up watching the Nature Channel um, you know, natural Nat Geo and, you know, uh, all of those kind of things. And, you know, when we're watching a story about meerkats, they've all got names, right? This is Susan right. and Bob, the meerkat That's family. Right. And, yeah. you know, this is what they're doing. And the narrator actually makes a personified story about what we're seeing so we can relate to it and we go, oh, that's nice, yeah, all this kind of yeah. stuff. So Westerners have a really unhealthy perception of animals in Africa. Like we think that, you know, circle of life, if we just leave them alone, everything will be fine. Yeah. And bring it back to your point, a lot of the most unique, amazing and sensitive animals, the ones that I think we really need to make an effort to look after, live in dark Africa. Indeed. And they have zero line of defense if it's not for those who go there to hunt them and right. put a value on those animals. So when you go there, I can only imagine what it would have been like for you going from South Africa and then getting thrown into that situation when you're actually dealing with, who are you training, like police force, anti-poaching? So, yeah, in South Africa it was police or military. Um, I never actually did any work with anti-poaching and it's something I've considered about you know, later in life, maybe doing that because that's kind of an interesting role um, for me. Once. But we didn't do any training in the DRC. When we were in the DRC, we were operational, so we were doing so security DRC work. is Demo Democratic Republic Con of Congo? Yeah, yeah, so there's two Congos, essentially. There's a, well, I suppose there's three, depending on how you look at it. There's the Congo jungle, yeah, and then there's two nations which share most of the Congo jungle. I think there might be a slice of the Congo jungle that strays outside of these two nations. But anyway, there's two nations. To the southeast is the biggest of the two, which is the DRC, which is the Democratic which Republic of Congo. Huge. It's huge. It used to be called Zaire. Yeah. Right? So that's the DRC. And just north and west of that is Congo. So yeah. there's Congo and the DRC, two separate nations, both of which share parts of the Congo jungle and the Congo basin. 
Um, but most of it's in the DRC. It's funny, if you Google Earth, Africa, like it's this band of like dry desert, you know, brown at the top and similar at the bottom. And then it's slow as you move, as you squeeze towards the middle, it gets a little bit greener. And then there's this dark, rich green like hole right in the very middle of the continent. That's the DRC. That's the Congo jungle. Which is, like I heard, I was talking to a South African the other day, and I might be totally wrong on this, so I'm going to have to do a bit of Googling in a sec, but I think the Democratic Republic of Congo is bigger than South Africa. I think it is too. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, quite a bit bigger. Yeah, it's a big country for sure. And it's it feels bigger because of the infrastructure. It's like New Zealand in a way. Like New Zealand's a small country, but it, particularly the South Island feels huge because there aren't that many roads to get you places and a lot of the roads are unsealed and so on. So it feels massive, but it isn't. And it's the same with um, with a lot of these countries in the world. Like South Africa might feel like a much smaller nation than you think it is because it's got relatively good highways and, you know, a good, you know, that sort of thing. But even if the DRC was smaller, and I don't think it is, I think it is bigger, it still feels much, much bigger because if you want to get from point A to point B in the DRC and you don't have wings, then, like, that's a mission. Well, you know? what, us white boys wouldn't make it. There's, there's no yeah. two ifs, ands, and buts about it. There's one thing yeah. that gave me respect for those early guys in South America and in Africa, yeah. those explorer guys. Absolutely. Holy shit were they dedicated yeah. to their trade. Absolutely. Like you read these things, you know, like 50 guys died and you, yeah. you read it, it doesn't really sink until you go there. Like, okay, I can actually see how mm. 50 people would die here if Absolutely. we tried to go from A to B. And they don't know what they were going to expect. They could have been encountering all kinds of fantastical monsters. It, like it's somewhat, you could equate it nowadays somewhat to going into space. Like the first... People that go to Mars, whenever that's going to happen, it's somewhat similar because they have no idea really what to expect. But it's not even. Anyway. We can see what's on Mars. In I suppose, theory, right? yeah. I suppose, yeah. You don't know what's in that jungle. Even now when you stand on the edge of one of those jungles, like there's nothing in you, you know, as part of my DNA anyway, that says to you, you should go in there and have a look. Like it's yeah. like, I don't know if I want yeah. to go in there. And almost everything in there is is capable of doing you some damage maybe not killing you directly but causing severe discomfort and and it's the small things too right you might discomfort. get a yeah <laughs> but you might get a small bite from something that creates a, like an yeah. itchy spot you know like the sand flies that we used to um but then in the jungle there are so many microbes and, and things that that could become infected and then your legs off you know yeah. like and we're not used later. to them either like it's, exactly like i tried to explain it to someone the other day when like when i was traveling a lot like you get bitten by mosquitoes in New Zealand, you get bitten mosquitoes here in Canada. Yeah. Every time you get bitten by a different species of mosquito, like your body reacts, like the the anticoagulant that they use must be yeah. slightly different. So my body would react severely with the first time I got a new species. So every you know, you spend a month in the Congo just testing out those species and then you jump across that's right to somewhere else in South America and then you've got yeah. another whole petri dish you have to deal with. Yeah. And it's yeah. our bodies are just not you know, if we fly from Canada or New Zealand to the Congo, we don't have any preamble or resistance built up to any of those That's bacteria right. that get into those little bites. It can get bad. Absolutely. Quick. Yeah. And when you have that kind of an issue in a, a humid, hot environment like the jungle, things, you know, take a turn for the worst rapidly. Yeah, you've got to be very, very careful. The jungle is a very inhospitable place. In some in some regards, it's quite easy to survive in the jungle in terms of resources. Like there's plenty to eat, there's plenty to drink, there's plenty to build shelter with and so on. Fire can be a pain in the in the backside. But on the whole, you know, 
in theory, on paper, what a human being needs to survive, the jungle provides in spades. Mm-hmm. I think anthropologically, we came from that part of, you know, the tropics, right? Yeah. We're a tropical species. But, you know, nature inherently is out to get us in one way or another. So it might have everything we need to survive, but, you know, we have all these other things to contend with as well. Everything else wants to survive there, not just us. Okay. So give me an example of what you were teaching, say, was it police force or military or whatever? What yeah. you know? What were you actually physically teaching them as an instructor, as a contractor? It was mostly uh, defensive tactics. So what that means is, and Hollywood has kind of butchered the term tactics and tactical um, now, but it's essentially the application of force in certain ways or the application of not just force, of any practical skills you have to deal with various situations so in the case of military and police that could be something as simple as um, a regular check stop in a vehicle that turns bad it could be to clearing a house clearing a building it could be dealing with a hostage situation it's whatever situation that those people typically deal with um, that might be a little bit off the wall from their regular role Um, we focus on the practical application of their skills for for those specific events. So, for example, we don't teach people how to be cops and we wouldn't teach people how to be a soldier, but we'd reinforce some of the skills they have and we'd build on top of them uh, to create a specialised set of skills. So is that in terms of, so that specialised set of skills, so what you're teaching them is a thought process, a decision-making process? Yeah, it's or interesting that you say that because, yeah, like 90% of it is that. Um, being a police officer, being in security, being a soldier and what have you, Hollywood would have you believe that it's all about the gun and all about your physical capability. It's about your strength, your muscles, your speed, how good you are with a gun, how much equipment you have, all of that kind of stuff. But it, it really starts, you know, inside your mind first of all we have something um when i teach various courses i teach i use a model called the pyramid of personal preparedness now i need to credit lofty wiseman from the special air service a little bit for this because it's like based on a model that he came up with some years ago which was his um pyramid of survival and we've just developed it a wee bit and it starts with a pyramid is built in such a way that um it can't. The top bits can't exist without the bottom. It has to have a foundation before you can build the next layer, right? So on the bottom of our pyramid, we have your mental fitness, your mental preparedness, and your will to survive. So whatever it is you're applying this thinking model to, let's say it's surviving a night in the bush when you've got a broken leg, um, having the will to get through that situation is more important than anything else. And you can apply it to anything. you know. So if we're talking about teaching police, you know, how you are prepared psychologically and mentally um, to deal with that situation is fundamentally the most important thing. On top of that, you have your physical fitness and your physical preparedness, because if you're not physically capable of doing what you need to do to achieve your goal or to get over that situation, then you're going to have problems. On top of that, you have your knowledge, which you can learn from lectures and books and videos and so on. On top of that comes your skills, which are your practical application of that knowledge. So yeah, you might know how to uh, light a fire in the bush, but have you tried it and practiced it when it's pissing down with rain? You might know how to clear a building where there's a suspected shooter, but have you practiced it and drilled it under stress and so on? So that then comes your skills. And on top of that comes your equipment, your kit. So the top of the pyramid where the kit is, 
um, isn't the most important. It's the least important. Without everything else underneath it, it just falls apart. So it's interesting that you mentioned the state of mind and the way of thinking about things because that really it's kind of two sections of the pyramid. It's it's fundamentally the the base, the foundation being that mental preparedness, but it's also the knowledge. So yes, we'd focus on a lot of that, um, but there's only so much you can do to teach someone that mental preparedness and mental toughness. In many ways, they have to acquire that whilst they're being taught the physical stuff we can teach them. So whilst that's a certainly a very important thing and it's something we focus on teaching them, it's kind of a, a deliberate byproduct of us teaching them the skills part. I imagine in a – yeah, it does. In a, in a law enforcement military aspect, that bottom layer, having your mind right, I guess you'd have to be pretty good at um, – well, not pretty good at, but you would have to – before you got yourself into a, a shitty situation, you'd have to have that foundation of why you're there and why you're doing it. You'd have to have yeah. that – exceptionally well squared away so there was no doubt as to what your steps would be further up the exactly. chain like why am i a yeah. policeman well i'm doing it because i am providing for my family i'm protecting my family i'm right. looking after my community you know why are you a soldier insert motivation and convictions right. here and then build out from that is that correct yeah absolutely and most people have that pretty much sorted because by the time they would come to us, they'd have it pretty much sorted because the selection process weeds out a lot of that. The people who have the wrong motivation, right? if they're there for, um, for financial reward, you don't get rich being a cop or being in security or being a soldier. It just doesn't happen. Or if you're there for glory because you saw a movie once and it looked badass and you want to try that they get weeded out pretty quickly or the Rambos that just want to carry a gun and shoot at stuff and blow stuff up. They, those kind of characters tend to get weeded out pretty quickly. Um, people might have that kind of motivation as well as other things, but their found their fundamental motivation um, needs to be, um, needs to be positive. It needs to be conducive to what they're doing, whether that is to look out, to serve their community, to protect people, to look after people. Sometimes it's something much more simple than that. They want to be part of a team. They want to have meaning and value in life. They want to feel like they're part of something that's bigger and more important than them. Um, or they've got sort of no one or nothing else in life to sort of to fill any those kind of holes. So they want a brotherhood and, you know, and that's actually a lot of what uh, soldiering is anyway. I don't really know so much if that applies to law enforcement uh, in quite such a significant way, but a lot of soldiering is that that connectivity to well, it's your a human trait. Like yeah. we want to be part of a, a group, a herd. Right. That's it's one of our most basic in- instincts. When you actually yeah. break down human behaviour, a lot of the things we do, say the way we act, what we you know, what we push ourselves into career wise, what we um, you know, the persona we put on in public is all mm. about being part of a. A group, whether yeah. it's a, a wider group of a say a community or even a country, mm. all the way down to your core family group, and if you get out of line in any way, the other members of your herd will drag you back in. Mm. And sometimes, if you're in a you know this is going off topic a little bit, but if you're in a herd that's perhaps a negative, having an overall negative effect on your life, and you yeah, try and change absolutely. Who you are and your direction, what do they do? They try and bring you down, they'll push right. you back, they'll and it's not often a it's not a um malicious thing. It's a it's a it's a safety thing. They don't want to see you out there on your own, bring yeah, you back yeah. into the fold where you're safe. So that's really interesting. So that pyramid, can we 
now and here relate that into a hunting sense. So let's say you're a hunter in New Zealand and you want to do solo hunts, mm. for example. So your base level would be your motivation to hunt. What do you want to do it? So that's, I think most hunters have got that pretty well squared away, whether it's their physical challenge, mental challenge, filling the freezer, trying to get yourself, you know, a trophy, insert parameters here. Whatever yeah. the goalposts are, we all have our different motivations for hunting. So let's say we've got the bottom pyramid pretty sussed as a hunter. What, what's the next one up? So the next one up is, your physical capability or your physical preparedness. But just a quick note on the, the mental side of things, it's also the ability to to overcome adverse conditions. So you have to, like, like hunting is not easy. I mean, there are some types of hunting in some places that are easier than others, but there's always some sort of challenge you have to contend with. And as as you know, anyone can break a leg in the bush, right? Even with the best prepared person under the best conditions, that bad things can happen. So you have to have... You have to have that preparedness in your mind in knowing that you're going out into the world, into a dangerous environment. You're going out probably on your own if you're talking about a solo hunter. And, you know, you, you have to be prepared that things can go wrong and you have to have that will to, to overcome. Whether your will to overcome is to get that stag you want, whether it's just to have a good time, you know, or whether it's to, you, whether it turns out to be, you know, surviving that night in the bush you won't hope you you didn't expect to have so there is that as well on top of that your physical capability now you don't all not all hunters need to be olympic athletes but if you wanted to come to canada here to bc and go and hunt a mountain goat or a sheep you need to be in quite a different level of fitness than you would if you wanted to come to vancouver island and hunt grouse right so it depends on what you want to do your that second level level of the pyramid that physical preparedness has to be relative to what you want to achieve so if you um you know if you wanted to come to the island and go and hunt blacktail you don't need to be olympic athlete fit but you need a, a, a reasonable modicum of fitness to be able to climb some hills you know scramble through some bush through some cut blocks and haul the meat out when you're done so you have to sort of balance that and i think that's important to for people to consider if they're dealing with an injury or if they're in bad shape or if they're getting older that they can still apply that and just change the type of hunting they're doing or the type of trip they want to take it's like i've you know i've got a bug a leg or i'm knocking on in years or whatever maybe i can't go for that mountain goat this year but what other kind of hunting can i do so i think there's something for everyone but you have to that second level of the pyramid being prepared physically you just have to cater that towards whatever it is you want to achieve right and it's there's a certain element to depending on what time of hunt type of hunt you're doing you know you might be able to get away and slog away doing a solo hunt and you're not in the greatest shape and you'll suffer and that's fine but yeah the way that I think about it too is, okay, now if you break your leg in that same scenario, do you have enough exactly. left in the tank exactly. to get yourself out of the shit? And yep. do you, the fitness side of hunting is something that I've had to push myself into as I've got older, just through natural seizing up, you know, too many heavy backpacks. But fitness was always a byproduct of what I did for a living, you know, right. whether it was, you know, guiding or filming and it was always in the hunting always in the mountain so fitness yeah. was always a byproduct and i was a lot younger then now you know doing what we do a lot more training less guiding i'm finally getting back to the yukon this year thank god nice. but um that kind of stuff has become less frequent and i've had to replace that with 
actually working out you know right. going to a, go to a gym go for a run which yeah. in my earlier years i would have gagged and laughed at you right like why would you want to do that you, yeah. want to, you just go climb something you know actual real life sometimes catches up on you so the guiding that i want to do is going to be physical and strenuous and then on the back side of that there will be a coastal goat hunt in my future which is um for those of you who don't know it's it's similar similar um terrain i guess to fjordland but without the same scrub and cover so it's it's it would probably be a steeper bit like doing and, a tar hunt in fjordland yeah if that be. was a, a thing it would be a bit like that but you start at ground zero like you're on the yeah. coast um so you're dicking around a, you know inlets and fjords and you yeah you know that you know i want to do it in the winter which is not the smartest thing to do, but they're fluffier <laughs> then. <laughs> and for me, the, most of the trophy of a big mountain goat is its coat. So you right. can do it in the summer, but they've got no hair. It's yeah. kind of like shooting a, a tar in the summertime. It's just right. not quite the same. So I want a big fluffy one. So I'm pushing sort of November through February. If we get a weather window, we'll go. But I know physically I've got to try and keep up with little Stevie Pereira, who's you know he's older than me, but he's like one of those little nuggety mountain goat portuguese little bugger that <laughs> yeah. climbs like there's no tomorrow and he's got zero percent body flat and just seems to float up hills and yeah i know a guy just like that yeah and i'm the polar opposite so i know in order to enjoy myself on that hunt i need to get myself in and and good enough phys- physical nick that i can do it right and then under load coming down off those hills potentially in the dark with a full mm. or half a mountain goat in your back. Yeah. If I'm with Stevie, it'll be a quarter of a mountain goat because he can carry three quarters of it on his own <laughs> yeah. down the hill in the dark. So I need to be in yeah. decent shape. So that's the second level of the pyramid. What's next? Knowledge. So knowledge would be, in the case of your example of hunting, there would be not just of the basic skills of in your field craft of how to track and, and that kind of stuff and how to shoot, but also the area you're going into. You need to know the topography. You need to know the climate. You need to know the weather, the animal's behavior, the behavior of other animals that might give you indication as to where your animal is. Because it's not always about the animal. Um, you know, there are certain birds that you can use to help locate uh, where your target animal is going to be. Um, certain types of vegetation that they might like to eat, certain vegetation that they avoid, things like that. So knowledge of all of that stuff. So Every aspect of hunting, whether it's the equipment you're using, the environment you're going into, the field craft you use, um, how to field dress the animal when you're done, all that kind of stuff, um, as well as uh, area-specific information. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so knowledge. And side note, I'm going to have to get you to teach me to light a fire without a set of matches because that's something I've always watched people do on YouTube and I've never actually done it before. Yeah, it's Just as you said that, I was like, yeah, I could probably get that done but the reality is i've never actually physically done it it's a lot harder than it looks i encourage people that when they want to try these things um to go out in their backyard on a night when it's pissing down with rain and persevere yeah. and just think I, I say to people if you're going to try out in the backyard when it's raining and you, you think bugger it in half an hour bugger it i'm done you give up but if your life depends on that heat and that warmth and that morale boost or that ability to signal or keep predators away or whatever you're going to have to persevere through that. So I encourage people to go out on kind of the crappiest night they can find in their backyard, you know, so they're not putting their safety directly at risk and practice those. Um, and that's the, that's the next layer of the pyramid, which is the skills, the knowledge. You know, you could look up on YouTube or on, you know, get a book out of the library or Google something and you'd find 
directions as to how to light a fire without matches in the rain with wet wood and all the rest of it. And you might retain that information, but unless you've practiced it and you've found the pitfalls in applying that knowledge and you've, you know, you've got that level of muscle memory, because skills is also about a lot of muscle memory, especially when surviving against you know, bad odds is concerned. Your brain might not be thinking correctly. It might not come up with all the finer details. So you're relying on that sort of subconscious level of training and those muscle memory built skills. So even though you might not be able to focus on it, you can still achieve what it is you want to achieve, whether it's lighting a fire or setting yeah. a broken leg or, or whatever. Third level of the pyramid is your knowledge, and then the top level, is that number four? Is that the top? Um, skills is number four, and then kit or equipment comes on top. Okay. So speaking of kit, people put way too much focus on that. Like I know people, hunters, who their main focus will be on getting a really nice rifle with a really nice scope and a good range finder and an awesome set of boots and, and all the good Gucci gear. And they think that makes them a hunter, you know, or that makes them a good hunter or it's going to bring them success or it's going to keep them safe or whatever it is. They rely on gear. Um, and that's an absolute mistake because I know, you know, one of the best hunters I know and my hunting mentor, and in, 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 certainly when it comes to hunting deer in New Zealand, is a friend of mine called Critter. He's the mountain goat that we were talking about, the friend you had, who's mm-hmm. not an ounce of fat on him, and he's up and down the shingle slides and everything. Critter's very much like that. And he's older than me, and he's in incredible shape. And he uh, he's a really good hunter, and he's never really been focused on the gear. So he's kind of a good example of someone who knows what he's doing. He knows uh, he's got all the other parts of the pyramid in order, and the top part of the pyramid, that kit, he doesn't care too much about. I mean, he likes a nice pair of boots, the same as anyone else, but he can do without them. You know, he doesn't have a fancy rifle that costs $3,000, and he doesn't have all the good gear. He just makes do with what he's got, and he has great success, and he's a great hunter and has a great time. And then the other side of the coin, which you see particularly here in North America, <laughs> yeah. you get people who get who spend all the money and they, they look like they've just stepped out of like a Cabela's catalog, you know, and uh, and they have no clue what they're doing. They don't know which way is up, you know. And uh, so kit can be useful. There's no doubt about it. It can definitely improve your chances at, at uh, making a good ethical kill. It can improve your chances of surviving a bad situation. It can do all kinds of good stuff for you. But you have to have everything else first. You can't focus on that equipment. You can't buy success you can't buy a result you have to work at it yeah know? absolutely you you know even when you bump into other hunters in new zealand you can quickly see the guys who do a lot of hunting just by looking at you know what they're wearing you know i always look at their knives yeah quite often you know you got your old victrinox with a bit of rubber and a you That's know, right. around the edge of it so they don't lose it like just there's people who have done a lot tend to refine yeah. their kit and it's never fancy stuff it yeah. really isn't you know my father's probably a good example he's owned a um, a two hundred dollar Parker Hale two four three for my entire life, and then he, you know, he tell, has told the story many a times that he bumped into a guy in the car park of hunting and fishing on his way out with the rifle. He had just tried to sell it to hunting and fishing, and they didn't want it, so he offered him a couple of hundred bucks for it in the car park and bought yeah. it. And that's what he's used my entire life. And that's got a, you know, shitty old, you know, original Weaver scope on it. You know, original yeah. the rings of been rusted shut for so long you know they don't move and yeah. he's never adjusted as far as i know ever adjusted the scope but that's always what is used right you know so that kind of thing i, I totally resonates with me 
Yeah. Um, on the other hand, if you're doing a lot of hunting, it is nice to have some nice gear sometimes. <laughs> There's no doubt. No doubt about it. Yeah. Particularly if you're in an uncomfortable place. Like yeah, if you're, I, I, could, I agree Like completely. a good night's sleep is a good night's sleep. If you're in the jungle, like not getting bitten and, you know, who was it I had on the podcast? It was Todd was talking about it. I asked him what his favorite bit of hunting kit was and his answer was wet wipes. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. He said no matter where you're hunting in the world, yeah. wet wipes are excellent yeah for sure i um yeah i think that equipment is definitely a good thing as long that's why it's on that pyramid right but as long as it comes after everything else as long as it doesn't come the other way around because that's when you you get problems but having good i always say to people that when you're getting equipment for whatever it is whatever activity whether it's hunting or or just going out in the bush that always get the best equipment you can afford as long as it's relevant to your activity. So avoid these additional gadgets that everyone loves to sell you. It's like, hey, I've invented this new thing that'll, you know, whatever it happens to be, often these gadgets are just a way to part you from your money. Yeah. So there are certain fundamental things in a hunting capacity that, you know, a good uh, someone who hunts on a regular basis or takes hunting seriously should have and it's worth spending some money on. Boots is a significant one, like foot, or not just boots. What depending on where you're going, footwear, quality footwear, relative that's relevant to the environment you're going to hunt in is essential. Like Curran and I were having a conversation about this actually about lowers. Curran's not a lower fan, but I, I quite like lowers. I've got my mountain boots are lowers, yeah. Um, but they're horrible for hunting around here on the island because they're too hard. They're too yeah, stiff. They're a three-quarter shank, so that's they make right. a hell of a noise. Yeah, so for this soft environment where you're not really climbing anything steep, and if you are, it's soft steep. It's not like craggy rocks and shingle. It's soft and you're clambering over mossy logs. They are not the right footwear at all. You know, you could get away with like, you know, just a trail running shoe hunting around here, but then you took that into mountain goat country and you'd suffer. So, but footwear is really important. I think one of the first big hunts I went on as a young guy was wearing gumboots. That was, uh, that was a miserable experience. You think they'll keep your feet dry. And then as soon as you have to cross the first creek, of course, it's a waste of time and your socks keep diving down. They don't breathe. So you sweat. Terrible. Yeah. It's a common question that you know, I get, and I'm sure Curran gets it as well, particularly with our boys coming over to Canada, is, you know, what boots should I have? You know, I heard lowers were good, and then someone else said mendels were good. And at the end of the day, it really depends on what shape your foot is. Yeah, like, there's not enough emphasis on, well, it's not so much about the boot. Yeah. When you're in the higher-end European hiking boot, sure, some of them are better than others, some last longer than others. Right. But – what I've found is it really comes down to what fits your feet. So yeah. lowers fit my feet really well. Right. And I, you know, back when I was hunting 300 days a year, like I'd burn through a pair of lowers in a year. So I get someone who would say to me, well, how, how long do your boots last? A year max. Oh, yeah. shit, I've had a pair of mentals that's lasted me five years. Okay, but how many days yeah. do you actually spend on the hill? And that's the thing. It's not time, it's footsteps. It's footsteps, you know? and it's where you're taking those footsteps. If you yeah. walk around on your back lawn mowing your lawns with yeah, your lowers exactly. for five years and do yeah. one hunt, yeah. then they're going to last. But if yeah. you're you know, on the West Coast just pounding them in shale and shingle, like sure. no boot will withstand that kind of punishment for a long period of time. Like That yeah. can really, really cut them up quick. Okay, that's yeah, really I cool. Think, I think that you're right when you say – um, everything fits people slightly differently. But another tip that it, when it comes to gear, um, particularly clothing and footwear, if you're not sure what's going to be the most appropriate type for the area, is look at what the people who are there wear. So like if you were to go to, say, the Kootenays and you, you, you know, 
you, where the area is mountainous, but it's not like Yukon mountainous. It's not mountain goat uh, mountainous. If you're hunting, say you're hunting elk or something there, and you think, what's the most popular uh, rain jacket? What's the most popular boot stuff? What are people here wearing, generally speaking? Then the, you're just drawing on their experience, you know. This yeah. is the best type of thing we've found for these conditions, yeah. you know. And if you're going hunting in another country, whether it's somewhere in Africa, somewhere in Asia, or whatever, just look at what style of equipment do the locals use, and then pick, you know, something within that style that fits you and fits your budget. Yeah, that's pretty good advice. So back to your training stuff. I'm fascinated with this because I don't know any of this. So your training stuff. So you're teaching tactics and how to deploy their training when the shit hits the fan is that yeah and a lot of yeah a lot of what we would do is um high pressure testing so it's not actually that different from the predator defense courses i was teaching here last week so the content might be different but the foundation of the course and the program is pretty much the same so for example just to use the the predator defense stuff only because i just did a whole bunch last week um anyone might be able to take their shotgun and, and shoot a slug through a you know a two foot um, square piece of cardboard at like 20 yards and they might be able to do that nine times out of 10 no problem but we create a situation when we train them where we put them in awkward physical positions like in different positions laying down to simulate if they fell over backwards or they had an injury here or shooting from other parts of their body um, and we get their blood pressure up by adding the stress and of uh, timing them we give them distractions we um, we get them to do physical activity like we'll actually get them doing things like jumping jacks and burpees on the range just to it's not just for fun I mean you might think that you know I'm just being a mean instructor that's laughing at these poor people doing burpees in the you know the 25 degree sun but the purpose of that is to elevate the heart rate, get them out of breath, elevate the blood pressure, the adrenaline starts going, the timer's running, people are yelling at them, the, the, the target's starting to move. So they're applying the same skill that they were probably good at beforehand, but we're creating a dynamic high-pressure situation to test that and to refine it and to make sure that if things start to fall apart, which they always do, we can refine it and we can say, well, here's how you can prevent that from happening. Here's how you can... Uh, you know, deal with that problem and, and so on. And we refine that. So it's a lot of pressure testing. It was the same in in the security industry, whether it was in South Africa or wherever, if we're training a lot of these, like it's the tactical application of force under stress, basically. So you could, if you're a law enforcement officer, you could go to the range all day long and shoot at a target with your pistol from your, you know, drawing it from the holster, engaging the target. But we'll create a scenario that's that little bit more realistic with consequences, with penalties, with you know, deliberate psychological and physical stresses to make them as prepared as they possibly can be for the real thing. Interesting. So your um, recent courses, you're doing predator defense and awareness stuff um, for industry that are exposed to what, grizzly bears here? In um, anything really. The, the course is structured around bears only because that tends to be the most common interaction but it would work with cougars wolves with anything on four legs mm -hmm. um but uh, these last round of, coast of uh, courses were with the coast guard and their biggest concern is actually polar bears because they go up through the northwest passage along the top of the yukon top of nunavut northwest territories to deal with nav aids like the the aids to navigation for vessels and stuff up there lighthouses radio shacks on mountains they go up there the Canadian Coast Guard isn't like the U.S. Coast Guard, which does 
The U.S. Coast Guard's very military-like. In fact, I think it might be a branch of the military in the U.S. The Canadian Coast Guard isn't. It's very much focused on search and rescue and maintaining all of that infrastructure. Right. So when they're up there dealing with um, infrastructure, there's a huge threat of polar bears. And po- out of the three type, main types of, polar, of bears we have here, the black, brown, and polar, polar bears are the only ones that are deliberately and consistently predatory towards humans. And they're really hard to spot because when you're in an area where you look around, everything's pretty much flat and white. Polar bears don't stand out all that well. So, you know, the chances of one sneaking up on you possibly is relatively high. So they have to deal with that. It's again, it's the perspective that people have. I heard a statistic the other day that polar bears are actually on the rise. Mm. There's more polar bears now than there have been for a long time. And I know that's contradictory to a lot of people's thinking because they've become a um, a poster child for – Global yes. warming, yeah. and global warming, in my mind, without a doubt, it's happening, whether we like it or not. Um, and they're having to polar bears are having to adapt because there's no ice flows. But one thing that people don't understand about polar bears is they are, if we all got chucked in a big paddock, they are in terms of North America top of the food chain, absolutely. hands down, absolutely, and they are active problem solvers and opportunist hunters. So. I hate to break it to everybody, but polar bears, when they see a person, the first thing that goes through their mind is, how can I eat this person? Exactly. Like they are not fluffy friendly in any way. They are very much opportunistic. So polar bears are, out of all the bears, I mean, black bears, you know, probably the lowest, definitely the lowest on the totem pole. Absolutely. Because they get predated on by grizzly bears. Yeah. Because they're a little bit smaller, they're ecology and their um, behavior is nowhere near as aggressive they can be aggressive particularly yeah. if cornered or wounded if they've got young ones with them etc it's but- also due to food availability too exactly. though, right there's a lot for black bears to eat and generally there's a lot for grizzlies to eat but there's not a lot for polar bears to eat no so that's why they can't pass up an opportunity like even a grizzly bear would look at the average human even like a big meaty one and it's not much of a meal compared to you know other things they have available yeah so they'd pass it up Whereas a polar bear takes what it can get. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, you see that trend too, the difference between if we're talking about grizzly bears, you've got coastal grizzly bears who have a lot more food. They have the luxury of the the end of the fall salmon run. So there's not a lot of pressure. You go up into the mountains and you're dealing with a mountain grizzly, then you've got that element of desperation again. And that's where they get their Latin name, Ursus Horribilis. Like they are cantankerous and angry little shits is what they are. But polar bears, by far the worst. And the only reason people don't get eaten by polar bears every day is because they're up there and we're down here. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, so you're teaching them um, predator defense stuff. So you're getting their heart rate up, put the pressure on, and then getting them to shoot moving targets? or Both. We start with static and then we move to moving. Um, And it depends on the nature of the course and how much time we have because each agency or each corporation or client has a different budget of time that they have. So we can make it more dynamic depending on time. Also, you have to cater it somewhat to the group because not every group can handle everything um, physically or more importantly, psychologically. And what I mean by that is you want, you want the participants to leave feeling confident. You want them to feel empowered that they have the confidence and the competence to deal with that. You don't want them walking away feeling defeated, deflated, and afraid. So if you push that stress, it's kind of, you've got to walk a bit of a tightrope as an instructor in these regards, because although we have a a syllabus, 
it's slightly different for each group we teach that syllabus to, depending on how what the, the people are like, the actual participants. Because if you push the stress and the seriousness too far and the pressure too far, you can break a person. And instead of instilling them with confidence, you can make them gun shy. You can make them terrified of bears, afraid to go out. You can make them think they they wouldn't survive. They can't do it. So you've got to make sure you don't do that because then you're yeah. you're ripping out that bottom part of the foundation. I totally you know? get where you're coming from. We, you know, and completely honest, I think we crossed that line a couple of times a few years back when we were doing our training for Ultimate OE. Oh, yeah. Like there's a few of the boys turned up here who were so wound up and frightened of beers in general right. that it affected their experience in a negative way and it was yeah. one of our outfitters actually took me aside at, at SCI one year and said look you have to you know this is what happened you know blah 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 and it sort of dawned on me then you know put my hand up and said you know what I think we need to change our language and our wording around mm. certain aspects of it because it's a natural because it's the unknown right you know particularly for our you know you know you've been you've taught our hunting boys so we've got a, a group of you know young guys who are jacked up going to Canada, really excited. You know, they normally have a really good hunting foundation in New Zealand and the they are the biggest and most obvious shortcoming for them is the predator thing because that's the easiest thing to think of. Yeah. You know, by the end of the course, they realize there's a whole bunch of other stuff that they didn't know. You don't know what you don't know. But the bear right, thing right. is the one thing that stands out in their mind. So they naturally yeah. want to ask questions about it and we – you know, when we do our bear training, we try and keep it, well, these days in particular, we try and keep it very simple, honest. They need to go with a healthy respect, but they don't right. want to go over there um, overconfident, but yeah, they don't want to go sure. over there scared shitless as well. So I, I absolutely know what you're talking about. But it's particularly new. It's new for Kiwis, right? People who haven't been, I, like I tell a lot of the people I teach here, the hunters I teach, I teach them the, the core hunter education program and stuff to people here too. And we, we mentioned a little bit about predators in that course. And I, I often give them anecdotes about hunting in New Zealand because they're interested, you know, so I just throw a bit of that in there. And they're always surprised to learn that in New Zealand, pretty much anywhere in New Zealand, you could go to sleep out in the bush naked with a slice of bacon on your chest. And the worst thing that's going to happen to you is you might have a crow or a rat chewing on it when you wake up. And they just don't realize that you know, people who spent their life hunting in New Zealand where there's that level of security. I know that New Zealand has the environmental and the weather issues and all the rest of it, just like Canada does. Um, but that's predictable. You know, it's, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. And people are used to that. Young Kiwis are used to growing up knowing that the bush is a dangerous place, the weather can turn on you and so on. But it's it's a new experience to come to a country where you have to contend with all that and animals that you and know, you're not the top of the food chain exactly anymore. yeah and there's one thing that i know i played out the pre-canada when i was a young fella pre-coming over here you know i played out the scenario in my head where i got charged by a beer and for whatever reason i don't understand why we do it because it's so unrealistic but when you're playing out that scenario that fantasy in your head you imagine a beer running straight at you down an open field like a rugby pitch right yeah first beer we got charged by you know, you see it, you know, it started at 60 meters. You saw it maybe a flash of it once yeah. and it's in your face. Yeah, they like, are fast. They are fast and they're going through terrain and up and down yeah. and they are not stupid. They don't run out in the open. They want to stay in cover until they're on yeah. top of you. And that whole scenario played out so quickly. Luckily, you know, I was behind the guy with a gun and he dealt with the scenario, but suddenly dawned on me as a like, holy smokes, this is not 
what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. This is not a wide open charge. You've got time to, you know, take a knee and, you know, yeah. shake it off and act like a hero and then, you know, yeah. smoke it on your boots. It's a, when it actually happens, it's, it's, it makes you sick how quickly it happens. Yeah, for sure. It, the turning of it just boom. Yeah. And then it's over. And you're not prepared for it based on what the animal's like because, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier about animals being personified in the media and giving like a, you know, a human, an, you know, a sort of an anthropomorphic uh, pers- personality or character. This they, is Fuzzy um, the grizzly bear. Exactly. He doesn't like yeah. licorice. Exactly. Or you will have a teddy bear when you're a kid. Or, you know, if you, you look at a bear and you think that's – they look fat. Often they're like big, cumbersome, lumbering, fat-looking creatures. And generally speaking, they don't move quickly. When they're just going about their business, they lumber around pretty slowly. They're large, fat, hairy, ungainly. You're used to seeing them in you – know, Cuddly. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> right. But when they want to shift – the first time I saw um, a bear really go for it was actually a black bear. Um, so not particular, and it wasn't a particularly big, big black bear. So it wasn't particularly intimidating. It wasn't charging a person. It was actually running away. Um, but it was the first time I saw with my own eyes how fast a bear can move. I'd seen them plenty before then, but never really moving quickly. And it was just, just shocking. Like I, I can't imagine many animals moving quicker than that. Even a deer. Like and deer are quite inc- and you see them occasionally in the Kootenays. You see grizzlies chasing deer, and you think, how quick can a deer or an elk move? You know, at least as fast as a horse, at yeah. least. And there's there's a, you know like a, a seven hundred pound grizzly that's keeping pace, no problem at all. Yeah, you they don't look athletic. What's the stats? Know? I think they can do fifty k. Oh, easily. Yeah, yeah which is 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 getting up there. I mean, if you actually yeah. put that down, like you got Hussein Bolt and a grizzly bear from a running start. Yeah, I think I worked it out on a calculator one day because I was bored, <laughs> obviously. And I think you know a same bolt just gets under ten. A grizzly can just get under seven. Yeah. So in a hundred yard dash, that's a big deal. If you stretch that over two, three, yeah. four hundred meters, yeah, mate, you are so far behind. You're partially digested. Yeah. You know, absolutely. It's it's yeah. pretty impressive to watch them move. Okay, you know, they're, they're awesome creatures. Okay, so back to Africa. What I want to ask is, what was? Can you think of one in particular incident, experience, um, event that was your most scariest moment while you were there? From a hunting perspective? No, just from any perspective in Africa. Uh, yeah, that. Well, that's that's a deep question because there's there's a. Uh, I've got a lot in the tank for that. <laughs> I thought you might. <laughs> if you're asking me to pick one, I, I I don't know if that's possible, but I'm actually I'm doing some writing at the moment. Um, so the one that floats to my mind, people do ask me this, occasion, this question occasionally, and lately this particular, um, there's been a particular incident float to my, floats to the top of my mind but um, that I'm, I'm writing a bit of a story on. But... Um, there's actually something I just thought about that I'll tell you about instead, only because it's a little bit more entertaining. Okay. It's less, it's less serious. But we can get back to some serious stuff if you if you want. But um, somewhat outside of my being in Africa, in the capacity we were just talking about, I was riding my motorbike. Um, I flew into London some years ago, and my plan was to buy a motorbike and ride down through Europe, across the top of North Africa, and then up through the Middle East and back to the UK, and then. If I, if I had the time and the money, I was going to ride the bike back to New Zealand. Anyway, the whole 
thing was a debacle. It didn't go to plan. But I was in Morocco on my motorbike. So Morocco, for those who might not be familiar, it is still part of Africa. It's just right at the top. Um, I was in Morocco and I wasn't going to ride across through Algeria and Libya at the time, although that was my original plan, because in order to go through Algeria at the time, and this was 10 years ago, um, at the time you had to have a guide from, they called it the Office of Tourist Affairs or something. It was police though, basically. It's quite common. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And a lot of it's nonsense and a way to extort money out of tourists and whatever. But And it's also to make sure that you – you behaving yourself in their country. You had to have that, and I didn't want any of that nonsense. I didn't want a guide. I wanted to sort of explore on my motorbike on my own. Um, and I, I love traveling by motorbike. It's one of my favorite things to do. And I, I didn't like. I didn't want that. The freedom that gives you to be cramped by me being escorted by someone. Um, and the other thing was, you had to have a document called a carne, which is a document that. Essentially, when you go into some of these countries, they want to make sure that you're not going to sell any of your stuff in their country without paying duty or tax on it. So when you enter the country, you have to pay duty and tax on everything you have. And then when you leave, they check to make sure you still have everything and you didn't sell anything. Then they give you the money back and to get it. And that's obviously really expensive and prohibitive, prohibitively expensive and awkward. And all these countries are have issues with corruption, you might not get your money back anyway. So there's a way around that, and it's called a carne, and it's a it's a French word. I don't know what the translation is, but essentially it's kind of like an insurance policy. You buy an insurance policy that covers you for the amount of stuff you have. I don't know if you ever had to deal with this with photography equipment. So. Yeah, we had to get them for cameras often. Right, because yeah. you know it's, it's only really for valuable stuff. Like They're not going to care about your clothes and that kind of stuff, but jewelry, electronic equipment, motorcycles, camping equipment, stuff like that, they care about. So you can get a carne and it, you pay your premium, which isn't, which isn't cheap. It's still quite expensive. And then that carne guarantees certain countries, and it comes in a whole bunch of languages. So, you know, uh, everyone, every border you go to, there's a translation there explaining that essentially this document will guarantee that you won't sell anything in country. And if you do, that insurance company will pay the duty or whatever. So I didn't want to do any of that because it was expensive, complicated, awkward, and I didn't want to have a guide. So, Although my original plan was to go across the top of North Africa, I binned that, and I thought, I'll just do the two ends. I'll come down and do Morocco, and then I might go to Tunisia somehow, and then I'll go over to Egypt. I was sort of going to do it backwards and forwards from Europe with ferries or whatever. But I was in Morocco on my motorbike. I forget the name of the small town, but it wasn't far from the um, uh, Algerian border. And I was in a cafe there. And there was these, there were this German couple and another German dude, like a threesome that were traveling. And they had come across North Africa in like a beat up old Mercedes diesel wagon. They'd come from uh, the east side across to the north side. And we just started talking and their English was perfect. As so many European, young European people can speak English better than I can. A lot of the time it's embarrassing. Like I can't speak any German. My French is terrible. And I meet German and French people and their English is spectacular. Anyway, I hadn't spoken to anyone in good English for a long time. So we were just having a conversation. We had a couple of beers and we were talking about, um, they were telling me some of their adventures in the countries that I wasn't probably going to go to because of those issues with the carne and what have you. And we were talking about, there's a lot of old Roman ruins and stuff in that part of North Africa. And a lot of them I hadn't seen. I've heard of them and I've seen a few here and there in places like Morocco, 
but there are some really interesting ruins. And they were talking about this particular site, which was just across the Algerian border from the town I was in in Morocco. It would have been like a few Ks from the, the town to the border and then a few Ks from the border to this site. And they said, you've got to go and see this. It's awesome. It's like you could like you could ride your bike there in like an afternoon, no problem, and just go and check it out. And the border's mostly desert there, right? It's not like they have, you know, uh, anything distinct. There's no physical governmental barrier. Um, and the ro- few roads they have have checkpoints, but they're not manned all the time. So it's kind of, it's a loosey-goosey kind of a border situation. But anyway, they convinced me that this site was super awesome and worth checking out. They just the way they were talking about it and describing it. They didn't show me any photos for some reason. I maybe that was a bad idea, bad indication, but I don't remember seeing any photos that they showed me. And they were just talking about it being super awesome. And I thought the next day I'll go and check it out. And I I rode to a town that was that little bit closer to the border. I ended up parking my bike um, with this guy who owned a, like a street side cafe. I gave him a few dollars and said, "Look, if my bike's still in one piece when I get back, you'll have a few dollars more," kind of thing. It's, quite a standard thing to do in those parts of the world and it generally works out fine. And I wanted to hike across on foot because I thought I'm not taking my bike into those areas in case I have a problem. Getting it back out will be a pain, but getting myself back out on my own would be easier. And I was much, I was 10 years younger. I was in much better shape. I was invincible, right? I was this young guy. I felt like I could take on the world. I, um, so I crossed on foot and it took me a couple of hours probably. And I got to this site. I, it didn't have GPS or anything back then. I had a, um, a reasonable map of the area, as reasonable as maps of that part of Africa can ever be, which is quite different from like a like a Kiwi map of the South Island. You know, yeah. the detail's pretty sporadic, but it was good enough for my purposes. And I had a compass and I, I knew what I was doing. I knew how to navigate my way around. And I got to the site and I was really disappointed. I was like harking back to the night before when I was talking to those Germans and I thought I'm either in the wrong place or their like idea of impressive is quite different from mine. Like there were some broken down old walls and like it was, it was an unimpressive ruin. I was like, okay, bugger it. I'm here. I'll, um, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, have a look around, maybe take a couple of photos to at least say I was here. And, uh, on my way back, I knew that there was a road just to the south of where I was, and it was a bit of a bastard getting into where I went because I didn't take the road deliberately. I avoided it because I wanted to avoid any interactions with other people just because I didn't really want to see any other tourists or anything. Um, and, you know, the day was, was getting a bit long, and I thought I'll just head south to the road and I'll just tab back through, uh, you know, along the road because it would be much quicker. I wouldn't be scrambling up and over the, the you know, the hills. Um, so I did that and there were some tourist vehicles there. There were some, you could tell there were people like me on motorbikes traveling around. There were people in their four wheel drives and whatever. There were a few tourist buses minding their own business. No one gave me a second look. It wasn't busy, but there was some activity the the further South I got. And I just started walking along the road and, um, it was getting a a wee bit late and I knew I had like maybe two or three hours of, of hiking to get before I'd get back to my bike. Um, and a, a tourist bus pulled up. It was a big, like a uh, one of these man trucks, you know, man the brand, like yeah. this big European four-wheel drive, like jacked truck, but converted into kind of a bus. It wasn't really a bus. It wasn't really a truck. It was one of those kind of like um, off-road explorer vehicles, you know, full of yeah. people. It was also full of Germans and there was some Dutch people in there and whatever. And the guy, I can't, I don't know what nationality he was, but he spoke perfect English and he said, hey, do you want to ride? And I was like, yeah, awesome. I'll, you know, he was 
crossing the border into Morocco to go to off to wherever they were going. And, um, and I said to him, you know, just, you'll have to drop me off like a kilometer or stuff before the border in case there's a checkpoint and in case it's manned, because technically I wasn't supposed to be in Algeria, right? I was in Morocco. I had the stamp in my passport from Morocco and all the rest of it. And, um, I was talking to some of the people on the bus and just kind of forgot. And the driver obviously forgot. And all of a sudden I looked up and we were at the checkpoint, which was manned. And I was like, shit, you know, I'm now at this checkpoint <laughs> going from one country into another and I shouldn't be in this one. So I thought, okay, how do I play this? Either I just sit there and say nothing and hopefully they'll wave us through. They'll do a quick check and that'll be that. Or if it turns out that they'll do, they get, into our passports and so on. I'll just do the dumb tourist lost in the desert card. I'll just yeah. play that, which was kind of true anyway. Right. And, um, but they did, they checked um, all the passports, including mine. And they didn't really say anything about it. They just sort of checked everyone's passports. And then just towards the end, they just told me to get off the bus. And there's no point in putting up a fight in any, or an yeah. argument in any of that situation. So I did. And they waved the bus off. I was like, ah, shit. Now this is like, now I'm on my own. You know, and the bus didn't want to wait for me because it was kind of awkward. And there's a, the driver might have been worried that he would be liable for trying to bring someone across the border who didn't have the right documents or whatever. So they didn't wait for me. They didn't care about me. They had like washed their hands. They drove off. Fair enough. Um, so I was stuck there and they grilled me a little bit. They had a small shack. It was kind of bizarre because I don't know if you spent much time in that part of Africa up where on sort of the fringes of the Sahara you know, there's, there's no, you look left and right along this imaginary border and there's nothing yet where the road is, there's a shack with a barrier and it's bizarre because the barrier is like almost ceremonial because anyone or anything could walk just right past it. It's just, it's very, it's like, it's strange. It's like they put it there because they figure they should, but it serves real, no practical purpose, but they had a wee shack there. There were a couple of, um, couple of Jeeps there. There were maybe three or four, guys inside the shack, couple outside. They were all soldiers in like plain green fatigues, you know, kind of grumpy North African soldiers, not doing, having the best job in the world. And um, they grilled me a little bit in their terrible English and my terrible French, because they speak um, a lot of French there as well as Arabic and whatever else. We were communicating a little bit. And long story short, I was there for a while, just kind of waiting in limbo, thinking, are they going to let me go? And, what they were waiting for was the boss man to come. And I don't know what rank he was, but he was clearly an officer. And he came, he had a look at my passport. He was not a happy guy. He took me back to um, the nearest town, which would have been like 45 minutes to an hour's drive away, which would have been, and he was going like a bat out of hell as well. So it would have been like a heck of a long walk um, for me. I don't even know what the name of the town was to this day. I'll tell you why I kind of forgot all about it, but um yeah, he slung me in jail and it wasn't like a prison prison and it wasn't like a, a police officer jail. It was almost like a military, um, like an armory kind of military base kind of thing, but in this town um, and they had cells there and they threw me in there. They they kept me there for three days, two nights. They thought that I was spying for like, well, they, I don't know if they actually thought that or if they were just claiming that. Yeah. They said, oh, you're spying for whatever. They came up with all these ridiculous stories. And I had a camera and I had lots of pictures on my camera of time in Morocco. 
and they would sh- show me pictures and they say, you know, this is Algeria. Why are you taking pictures of Algerian city? And I'm like, no, that's Moroccan. It's the Moroccan town. It's not Algerian. It's got nothing to do with you guys. I was wandering around the desert in Morocco. I guess I got lost. I hitched a ride on a tourist bus. I'm just trying to get back to my hotel. You know, I'm not a spy, all of this kind of stuff. And it got to the point where I honestly thought I'd have to call the embassy and, you know, and get like some international help. And I was like super embarrassed you know, I was like, I'm going to have to like let my family know, my friends know. It's going to become this big incident that this idiot tourist got like, you know, and it's going to be this big deal. And I was like, and they, they were, they would like, when they came in to grill me, like they would kick my ass every time. But that wasn't as bad for me as the, like the shame and the embarrassment of what is, I knew was going to come. So they're physically kicking your ass? Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, um, Fuck. And I, I could deal, like, I've had stuff like that before in my life due to the work I've had and plenty since. And, you know, it's never fun, but you can kind of push through that. Um, there's that meant that pyramid there, right? That will to survive, that mental stuff at the bottom of the pyramid. But anyway, um, I was, it was like what was overwhelming to me and overwhelmingly, like, scary and overwhelmingly embarrassing and upsetting was the fact that this is going to become this whole big thing now, you know, and it's probably going to be in the paper and it's going to be on stuff, you know. (laughs) I can just, I could visualize the headline on stuff.co.nz, like, you know, idiot Kiwi tourist gets like detained and calls the embassy for help. Anyway, but um, after those few days, um, they cut me loose and they drove me back to the border um, and they just dropped me off at the border. And it was early one morning and I had to walk. There was no traffic. There was nothing. I had to walk all the way back to the town. I had none of my stuff. They took my camera, which had months worth of photos on it. So here's a tip, back your photos up, which I didn't do. So my photos, all of my photos for that trip up to that point, Especially if you're going to sneak across any borders. Yeah, Yeah. gone. Um, They um, they took like, there's some other stuff that was kind of weird, like had a Leatherman multi-tool. Like that was like all of the stuff that would have been interesting was gone. Um, they, um, I had a camelback in my backpack, which they didn't take, but they all found it fascinating to drink from it. And I like, I burnt that thing or something as soon as I got home. I'm like, I'm not, you know, <laughs> it's had like a million like Algerian soldiers' lips all over it. That thing's toast. But um, yeah, so when I finally got back, the other thing that started playing on my mind was my bike. I was like, I told the dude I'd be back in like eight hours and like days later, my bike's going to be like stripped down to the bare frame. Everything's going to be gone. I'm going to have nothing. I'm just going to be in the clothes I'm standing up in with like my passport and no money. Cause I only had a small amount of money with me, but they took all that. Obviously I'm like, no bank cards, no, everything's gone. I'm just, when I get back to my bike, I'm going to have nothing. And I'm just, you know, it might not be an international incident, but I'm have to going to call, going to have to call parents or friends to wire me money or something. So I started to stress about that. And I got back and my bike was exactly as I left it. Hadn't been touched. The dude who looked after it, just a legend. He just, it was like I had been away for five minutes. Um, even ha- I had money stashed at various places on the bike, either in my soft luggage on either side of the bike or in parts of the frame. I had it wrapped in various tin tubes and stuff so that I knew that if I got robbed in certain areas on my trip, I'd always have things spread around. Nothing had been touched. Nothing. The whole lot was still there. It was, it was, I was like elated. <laughs> like I could not believe it. I ended up spending the night with that dude. He had like a, I suppose you could call it kind of a cafe sort of tea shop thing. And I spent the night there because it was, you know, by the time I got there and, you know, I was exhausted and, you know, in terrible shape. Anyway, um, I got on my motorbike, rode back the next day, rode back into the next nearest town. 
and uh, got uh, a hotel there for the night. And it was the first time that I was in a hotel room that had a bathroom with a mirror. It was the first time I'd seen my face in like four or five days. And it was just shit state. Black eyes, busted nose, split lip. Like I was just a disaster. And it was oh, it was unbelievably funny. I know it sounds weird, <laughs> but I was... Because the, the, that adrenaline like from that whole situation just dumps, you know, and like the relief of like not having to to deal with that specific thing anymore and all that situation and just the ridiculousness the stupidity of it the hilarity of it it just was hilarious and i had no camera because yeah. you know, they'd taken it if i had my camera i would have taken a picture of myself and it would have been like a, like a constant reminder of you know of that particular event <laughs> so that was a that's um, a pretty crazy story i have to say yeah, I've that never, was a, a fun time in Africa. Never been that quite that deep, yeah. but I can certainly understand the um, that level of awareness you have to have in a lot of those places. Um, you never, you're never comfortable. You're always sort of subconsciously, at least, on alert at some level. And I didn't realize how much of a tax that is mentally and actually physically until yeah. you, you know, until you do it a lot when you, you know land in vancouver airport you know with the fountains going and the birds and it's just the most tranquil airport probably in the world and all that pressure comes off and you know it's before that it's when you cross the border get through customs which invariably is the highest stress situation of any trip you know when you've spent but they'll let you in those countries no problem oh yeah those cameras are totally legal come on in come on in because they know they'll get you on your way out and they're, oh right. where's that permit that you should have had yeah, or you know exactly you know exactly. how many batteries have you got well there's a yeah. battery tax there's no battery tax but you know they just shake mm. you down yeah. on every level you've got to know how to play the game because you really do you can't you can't just pay up because that makes things worse for everyone else and they'll fleece you and you can't not pay up you can't refuse because it's just going to go badly for you so you have to play the game and you have to come to this middle ground and it's a tightrope because you you want to make sure you're not offending someone that you're not overstating things or understating things you don't offer too much too less you offer to the wrong person you offer in the wrong currency or because sometimes they want local currency sometimes they want hard european or american cash or whatever so it's really is a tightrope and everywhere is slightly different. The customs are slightly different from one place to the next. So you think you've got it sussed and then you cross a different border between two different nations and you think, I know what I'm going to do here. And it's totally different. Yeah, I got you know? smashed. Where were we? We did a, um, Armenia, Azerbaijan, basically at war. Right. For ages. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. know, but they have basically they're constantly shooting at each other. And we had those hunts back to back. And of course, there's no flights that go between them because they're you know, not the best of neighbours, so you had to fly back through Russia to right. get back up. And the um, it was a surreal experience because we landed there and generally those hunts would get on, they would have a handler that would meet us at the airport. And for, right. what, for whatever reason, so it works as a translator, greases the right wheels, he knows the guys at the airport. You know, it just makes life a shitload right. easier for someone who doesn't speak a lick of their language, understand yeah. their custom. You, there's, as you say, you walk in a tightrope of offending somebody the whole time, and as soon as that happens, yeah, you know, you, your life just turns to custard. So, for whatever reason, he was late. So here's essentially three foreigners turning up with camera equipment and firearms, and our last stamp in our passport is Azerbaijan. Right. Yeah, well, it was the other way around, Albania. Right, Armenia. Sorry, Armenia. So that was the last stamp in the passport. So, of course, it just raised all kinds of questions that we can't 
articulate in the right way while you were there or hunting. You know, you can't hunt there. Well, mm. yes, we can because we were the right people. You know, who yeah. were those people? We didn't want to tell them that because the people that were with there, he was a famous general in the army who right. they are probably yeah. not a huge fan of. So we were evasive when it came to that question and that turned to custard. So that was like a four or five hour ordeal, you know, pressure on, pressure on, pressure on until a handler turned out. Handler turned up and he's like, oh, hey guys, sorry I'm a bit late. And we're like, <laughs> cool bro. <laughs> and literally it went In from that, time. like thinking, okay, we're either going to spend some time overnight here and get booted or booted right yeah. away. It went from that to gathered up all our gear, all of our passports got given back to us and ushered. We didn't even go through customs in the end. We got ushered out the back door, literally the fire exit that led straight into the car park out the back and away we went. No kidding. So like complete polar opposites. It makes but, such a difference if you know or you have someone who knows you know, how to navigate those waters. Yeah. You know, it's funny because it's not always corruption in the way that we would view corruption. You know, sometimes it's uh, it's just part of the deal. It is. It's, so it's just the way it works. Ingrained. You know, it's just the, it's almost like tipping in North America. You know, I'm not saying suggesting that tipping is a form of corruption, but I'm just making an analogy that it's a weird thing that to to if you come from New Zealand or any country that doesn't tip, the UK, whatever. You know the fact that if you don't tip, you're a bit of an asshole, and you know it's it really is expected. And there's certain things you tip certain amounts for in certain situations, and certain things you do tip a person for, certain things you don't. It's this very complicated um, and never Social. explained. Yeah, no, it's, it's not like you can buy a, a guidebook to tipping because it's it's really that complicated. It's kind of like that. These countries have. You know, when you go to a border, you kind of have to think, I have to tip the border guards here in a certain way, a certain amount for a certain thing, you know, and it's just a bizarre custom that. And if you ask anyone, they can't give you a straight answer because it's such a social read the cues dynamic that they can't actually give you a straight answer. There's no like, if this happens, you give them this much. If this happens, you give them this much, and this is how you give it to them. Like, I remember in the Congo, it was all about donating to their Christmas party. Yeah, you know, do you want to donate to a Christmas party? Sure, you know, cool. Mm. You know, and donating to the Christmas party meant that not one of my bags got opened. Right. You know, so there's right. that side of it, and then yeah. right to the point in Mexico, we were down hunting desert sheep in Mexico, and it was it must have been just before Christmas, and we got pulled over for air quotes speeding. We right. weren't speeding. So we get pulled over for speeding. We had a um, he was an American guy, but had spent a lot of time. Um, down in Mexico so spoke fluent Spanish and he said don't worry about it they're just you know it's before Christmas so they just they need a bit of a boost on their wages so it's a, a matter of just you know he's going to give me the speeding ticket right. I'm going to pay it now and that's it. Yeah. and that's it so literally at that point the speeding ticket was for I think it was for $40 American and he had a $100 note mm. and he bought him change so that's when you know corruption is <laughs> is ingrained yeah. where you actually get change on right. what is essentially a bribe. Yeah. Like he didn't want That's to rip fun, you yeah. off for your bribe. Yeah. You know, he's going to bring you your change. Yeah. You know, everybody pays their dues. So it's it's a really interesting compared to like your average Kiwi, like the idea of bribing somebody for something because that's essentially what you're doing. Yeah. 
it, you know, it goes against all of our social morals. We've been taught that it's wrong and blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, again, Congo, good example, militaristic state for, yeah. you know, nearly 50 years. The the bribery, like that corruption is so ingrained at every level of government, police, everything. Yeah. They literally rely on it like wait staff in Canada rely on tips. That's right, exactly. When without, it's a way of life. Without yeah. that, they don't make enough money to feed their yeah. family, so it's kind of expected, right? That's right. It, so it's, it's like there almost needs to be a different word for it, you know, because corruption has all these bad connotations, you know, and I'm not saying it's always a good thing, but it's it's a different type of corruption, you know? Yeah, Do you know a, what I mean? It's a tip given it's under like, duration. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. And I've, yeah, I've, I've had to do that a whole bunch of times when, you know, I, I wasn't prepared for it. I would just, uh, you know, someone would give me the nudge and, you know, sort of indicate that now's the right time. And other on the other flip side, I've done that when I shouldn't have and I've embarrassed people. You know, I've offered money when I shouldn't have and I've been told, you and know. And if you do that in the wrong place, and often it's as simple as doing it where they know there's video cameras. Right. So if they know that it could come back on them, they'll yeah. pretend like it's the worst thing and they and you force their hand. Right. So that's the worst thing you can do in one of those yeah. situations is force their hand and be like open air to a border guard and say, here's $100, can I go through yeah, now? Right. What do you think his answer is not going to be? It's yeah. going to be like, no, sir. Yeah. Bribery is illegal. Yeah. Now I have to take you to jail. And in his internal monologue is you dumbass. Yeah, because he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't that. want to do that. That's just yeah. more work and paperwork for yeah. him. And you know, and he doesn't want to ruin your day. And now he's not going to get that's that right. tip, uh, tip. Yeah bribe you're going to give him at some point so it's you know we used to travel with a guy called tony tonchev who was a um he's a um, native born macedonian you guys right. would have some interesting conversations i'm <laughs> yeah. sure but he when yugoslavia fell he was um involved in all that and he was the youngest um, ambassador to the un for macedonia so he spent a lot of time um in that type of environment like very experienced when it comes to right. let's call them real world situations that us in New Zealand don't have any freaking concept of. Right. So he was the best I've ever seen in those situations. He just knew the right time, the right amount, was a big enough and an opposing kind of guy that nobody ever gave him any shit. Just, yeah. you know, here's what we're giving you. This is what we need to do. He would converse. He spoke multiple languages. Right. You know, he could make that happen. So he was someone always that when he was around, I was like, okay, I don't have to worry about yeah. the bribing thing. I'll just stay with an arm reach of Tony and he'll yeah. handle everything for me. He was literally, his job was a professional right. handler. That's Those people are worth their weight in gold. Oh my God. There's, yeah. yeah. There's no doubt about it. They're like an emissary for you almost, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it is a diplomatic position in many ways. Oh, absolutely. You know, and he was a, he's an interesting guy. I'd love to get him on this podcast one day oh, yeah. and get a couple of Volkers on him because the stories <laughs> he would tell. I remember I got stuck in a hotel room with him and must have been Macedonia. We we're hunting chamois in Macedonia. And um, the boss flew, flew out, got on an earlier flight, but I um, couldn't change my flight for whatever reason. That's what happens when you're at the bottom of the ladder. So I had <laughs> to spend two or three days in a hotel room with Tony Tonchev, which is a whole different story. But at one point... <laughs> He was just getting changed and putting his shirt on. And I couldn't help but notice his back was just destroyed. Yeah. Destroyed. And his shoulders like had the worst stretch marks I've ever seen. And his back was just destroyed. Yeah. And it like it was bad enough that it shocked me. Like and he turned around right. and he could obviously see that I was, you know, 
shocked, emotionally yeah. affected by what I'd just seen. And he said, Oh yeah, that was a that was a bad time in my life and I sort of said, Well, do you want to elaborate? And he's like, Yeah, well, when uh it must have been when the US first invaded Afghanistan, he was still working for the UN and he one of his jobs was he was taking cash, so US currency mm. Across the border into Afghanistan to pay the truck drivers who were doing the aid, because of course, right. when you get invaded, your bank system turns to shit. So it's not yeah. like you can just pay your guys by direct deposit. So your currency becomes hard card cold cash. So the UN truck drivers need to get paid. So he got caught at a border with a quarter of a million dollars of US cash. Yikes! By the Taliban. Yikes! Who, you know, Anna's rap sheet so they took him and tortured him for something like a week mm. and he said he was held and tortured by a guy who spoke immaculate english with an english accent um, they were convinced he was spying for either uk or us um and they it got to the point where he said he basically he was just telling them anything just to tell them anything you break get to that point where you've just got nothing left and what saved his life was actually the truck drivers thought he had done a runner with the money. So there was a lynch mob going around the region trying to find him because he had stolen their money. And that was, the, you know, sort of the evidence you need. Yeah. And he said, to their credit, they sort of put me back together and gave me a bag, the bag with the money and patted me on the ass and said, you know, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have a good week kind of thing. But he spent months and months in hospital and rehab. Like his no shoulders kidding. were completely separated and not Jeez. to mention the nasty wee numbers I'd done on other parts of his body, which we won't go into detail on. But, you know, we live such sheltered lives compared to that kind of stuff. Mm. And I'm sure, you know, just touching the iceberg of what you've been involved in, there's plenty of stories in the tank that follow that general that general line of thinking. Yeah, the world's an interesting place, and the um, it's funny that you mentioned Afghanistan. Afghanistan is uh, the two most brutal countries I've ever been to were the DRC and Afghanistan, but for quite different reasons. And uh, the um, I've always tell people that the, the the actual people you meet when you're in these places are often Lovely. fantastic, particularly in in those Central African countries, can be some of the nicest, friendliest, most generous people Happy. you'll ever meet. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think there's a reason for that. Actually, as a quick digression, their happiness is they have um, a lot of these places have a level of social security which we don't. So to us, social security is benefits, mon- uh, money, checks every month, roof over your head, medical care, and so on. But in a lot of these places where they're a little bit more tribal based, and tribal systems have their pros and cons. Of course, I'm not saying a tribal system is necessarily better than you know, Western democracies or whatever. But in these small tribal communities, the level of social security they have in that the whole community is about keeping the community going and will help any individual, any family with any problem, you know, that knowing that you have that constantly, it's like having a group of like the world's best friends who are around you all the time and they've got your back all the time, you know, so they're very relaxed. Yeah. Yeah, often very relaxed because they have that level of social security. And that's something that we don't often have unless you kind of have it yourself based on your own family, your own unique circle of friends, or you're part of another community within our society. But a lot of our society doesn't have that. But these small areas do. And I think that contributes to their happiness and the fact that they're generally quite generous and and helpful and welcoming because they have that really solid community core. Um, 
But with that said, there are some elements of the culture in these places which are fantastically brutal, like in ways that are really difficult for someone who, you know, who might grow up in a country like New Zealand or Canada or wherever to comprehend, you know, and we only really rely on what we hear in the news, which is not very much about um, Africa, as we mentioned before, the dark continent. It's not very much about Afghanistan either, except stuff that happens from a military perspective. So if we're relying on that limited information or what the movies and books tell us, most of which is garbage most of the time, right? Um, but the reality is there's a, there's an element of, there's a, there's a brutal side to human beings that exists that I've, I've witnessed that brutality um, most of all, and it, to its worst degree in the, in the DRC and in Afghanistan. That's where I've seen like that level of humanity that you don't realize exists until you see it, you know, which in many ways is a good thing. You know, you don't, you know, it's, it's funny. You sort of, you realize, you know, when you come away from a situation like that and having witnessed things like that, you look at people who've never experienced it, who have, who have um, lived a somewhat more sheltered life. And part of you thinks that's awesome. That's kind of how it should be. And part of you thinks, no, people should really know more about this. And I can't really make up my mind now whether I think it's a good thing that people don't realize the the potential brutality of some of the of some people in some parts of the world, or they don't. It's kind of a, yeah. a ignorance one, but... is bliss in a lot right. of ways, yeah. it, and it it really does ring true. You know, my you know when I first started traveling and then you know stepped it up into a lot of those Central Asian central african west african type scenarios and you know I, I never was involved in a um in a military or police or any of that type of stuff so i never got to witness firsthand any of that stuff but i sure as shit saw a lot of the aftermath yeah you know and like it really does change your perspective i mean travel in general is such an important component i think of being a well-rounded individual and having a well-rounded personality absolutely. and appreciating what we have. I mean, you don't yeah, absolutely you don't appreciate your shower unless you yeah. don't have one for two weeks, and then suddenly That's a right. shower is the nicest thing you've you've got. So if you live in a you know a sheltered country or a western country like New Zealand or Canada or whatever, and you never step outside of that bubble, it's yeah. really hard and very easy to get upset about the small things that become um, important to us. And when you come out of that and you come back to a place and you hear somebody whinging about, you know, insert bullshit problem here. It's annoying, eh? You know, have you seen that freaking, you know, roundabout they haven't trimmed it for months, you know, or, you know, I feel like I should get X, X, Y, and Z. That's pretty... Yeah, small in perspective. You know, you you yeah. going home tonight to a warm house and warm Absolutely. water. Absolutely, and it's funny because you can lose sight of that. Because I'm guilty of that. Like you know, and I've seen oh, we all some, some some nasty parts of the world. But I, there are times when I get frustrated when, like I was telling you when you arrived, how the septic system doesn't work. It's yeah. like that was really irritating. But you know, I, sometimes I have to catch myself, like in conversations like this, and remind myself about the fact that I have a septic system that works. 99% of the time is yeah. really awesome. But it does irritate me sometimes when, like, I've got friends in, in New Zealand who will bleat about how bad the, the healthcare system is or how bad education is in New Zealand or they're bleating about the government. And I'm like, mate, you, you really need to travel to some other parts of the world because there aren't many countries, if any, 
that are doing it much better than New Zealand, you know, and that the handful of Western countries like New Zealand, Australia and Canada that are at the top of the pile in the US and whatever that are at the top of the pile. And a lot of people in those countries like to whinge about them. Yeah. I mean, I think can really, we always improve? You know, oh, Absolutely. Course, Should we course, be trying to yeah. improve? Absolutely. Of course. But you've got to check your level of outrage when something's yeah, not quite right. right. You know, first world problems, right? First world problems, yeah. big time. And to be honest, that whole feeling and why hunting, I think, is, is so important to me as a lifestyle choice and to go hunting and put myself into situations that you know people who don't hunt look at me and go why would you want to go and sleep in a tent at 30 below and pound your body it's humbling through the snow for two weeks in order to you know maybe hunt something that you might may or may not get and one of the reasons i think is as people particularly those of us who you know let's face it we're in the one percent of the one percent You know, and, and hunting and going out and doing that stuff is a lifestyle choice. We don't have to do it. We choose to do it. But what it does and the type of hunting that I really get the most benefit from is stuff that gives you that that reboot. It mm, brings you back absolutely. down to what's important. You yeah. know, you you come home and you appreciate your your creature comforts, you appreciate mm. your you know, the ability to walk down to the supermarket and buy food, you know, yeah. all of these little things that people who never have to will never step out of the bubble never really gain an appreciation for yeah yeah that's a big part of the reason why i like hunting i you know sort of brings you back on the level it sort of recharges your heart a little bit and your soul and sort of gets you back out connected with things and for me something that that i find important about hunting is i know a lot of hunters who hunt because they they like the meat or they like the trophy or they like seeing the animals and whatever. And I can relate to all of that. All of that's great, particularly the meat. I love, I love, I've never been much of a trophy hunter. I've always been more of a meat hunter, but for me, um, there's something primal, um, about going on a hunt specifically, whether or not you actually get an animal, um, or not. There's something about being out there seeking something out, using your senses, using your knowledge of the topography. It has, it rekindles something inside me that is like from the caveman days. It has the same sort of effect on me that a campfire does. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're sitting around a campfire and you're staring into that flames, it has that kind of mesmerizing effect that just tickles something back in your lizard brain about how comforting a fire was back in the day when it was like your only safety from the saber-toothed tigers or whatever. Mm-hmm. That kind of effect is... It, I get that kind of result from from going on a hunt, from spending time out in the bush like that. It's something I think as a as a species we you know, we are used to it's kind of ingrained in our DNA. We are used to hunting things out and seeking things well, it's, out it's and solving these for problems. Us. We, yeah. We haven't been doing it as a population as a whole for a very short period of time compared to how long hunting and gathering right. fueled us as a species. The only reason we are as successful as we have been as a species um, is because we learned how to hunt and we hunted. So yeah. you can't remove that part of your DNA and just say, oh, I don't agree with hunting. I don't hunt. It's not for me. It's there. Mm. But in this day and age, we've got to a point as a, as a species where it's a choice. Yeah. You know, those of us who say that we, we have to hunt, we've got no choice. We have to hunt. That's bullshit. You don't have to. Yeah. You know, if you've got, you know, we, can hunt and we do hunt and it's a you know we've been afforded that lifestyle choice 
but you're right it's a, it's heavily ingrained i think in our dna and it's um it's almost you know when when you take somebody who's maybe a little bit older that's never hunted before out and you get them out and about in the wilderness you go hunting you know maybe they hear a red deer roar for the first time and stuff you like quite often you'll see a switch go that there'll be a, a little switch goes and there's a connection with yeah oh yeah this is very new and different to me but at the same time yeah it's familiar right it's, and it's a really hard thing to explain and i think a lot of the time as hunters we we struggle to articulate let's call it the spiritual side of hunting and right. why we hunt it's because we have a connection with you know the animals we're hunting the environment we're hunting in yeah. and the benefits mentally for us as hunters are huge absolutely and at that point you think about taking it away and out of our lives it's like whoa you can't do that why because we have to hunt and yeah. to a non-hunter that sounds very strange because yeah. we can't explain it yeah for sure i don't know many hunters in fact i don't know any hunters who hunt just because they like to kill animals and that's kind of it i know those people do exist but most of the hunters i know there's something cathartic or something some sort of spiritual connection whether they might admit to that or not is different you know but you can tell like you said you can recognize it in their eyes or when they're in their behavior when they're out there doing it they might never actually explain it in that way you know especially if they're a good old kiwi bloke you know you don't like to say that hey i've got a spiritual connection to the wilderness yeah a lot of kiwi good kiwi guys don't want to deal with any of that nonsense you know but you can tell that it's there even if they might not absolutely you know come through with it and where it shines through in your particular version of hunting you know whether it's you know out there in the pursuit of the animal it's the connection with the environment or it's you know bringing meat home and giving it to your neighbor you know all of that encompasses what it is to be a hunting and gatherer Mm. it's going out having a connection and appreciation for what you're hunting where you're hunting it and then bringing it back and providing that's a a massive part of it i think right well i think we'll call it a day we've we've been chatting for quite a while there's a whole bunch of stuff that uh, i wanted to talk to you about when it comes to firearms (laughs) training and 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 hunting core training in bc but we'll save it we'll save it until january when you're coming back to New Zealand to teach yeah. the boys how to well, give them their firearms licenses and um, Canadian first aid and we'll give the girls, I think, for the equine course, a bit of a survival reboot. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Maybe we'll get on the back lawn and try and light a fire with a, sti- a stick and string as an extracurricular activity. Yeah, and we're bound to find some rain. It is New Zealand after all, January Absolutely. Or not. Classic Waimati can be yeah. 35 degrees one day and the next That's day right. the boy, boys right. are coming off the horses with hypothermia. It's great. <laughs> yeah. It's instructor's worst nightmare. <laughs> all right. Good chatting, bud. Likewise. This episode of The Educated Hunter is brought to you by Ultimate OE. If you're a keen hunter and outdoorsman and you're thinking about heading over to do your overseas experience in the near future or you think it's high time you did one, then you should really consider doing one of our hunting experiences. These days we offer hunting experiences in both Canada and Scotland, which are designed for hunters by hunters. We look after all of the paperwork side of things, help you out with your visa, make sure you're covered legally, all that kind of stuff, make sure that's streamlined. And we also teach you everything you need to know before you leave New Zealand. This allows you to hit the ground running when you get to the country, so both Canada and Scotland, different trainings for different places. It's industry specific, so we teach you what you need to know or what your employers want you to know before you get there. 
This allows us to secure the best possible jobs, so we have access to the best jobs in both Scotland and Canada, and they're all paid jobs, and we work with only the best outfitters. So if you want a little bit more out of your OE, you want to go over there, have a real adventure, do something really unique, and expand your mind and experience as a hunter, see how the rest of the world does it, or at least how they do it in Scotland and Canada, uh, this is a great stepping stone. So if you're interested, flick us an email at ultimateoemail at gmail.com or check out our website ultimateoe.co.nz for more details. Thank you for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. If you would like to receive a short email from us once a fortnight that contains everything that we've found interesting, educational, entertaining or inspiring within the hunting world, as well as updates on relevant hunting issues, our on-the-ground initiatives and any upcoming events, please visit theeducatedhunter.com forward slash join. You can also check us out on Instagram at theeducatedhunter or finally join the conversation in the Educated Hunter Facebook group. The links for all this can be found below in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening and catch you on the clearing.